At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the Blue Banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the Blue Banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ's church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. Well, we want to welcome uh, everybody listening again to another episode, another installment of the Blue Banter podcast, a podcast uh, where we are seeking to introduce the members of the RPCNA to the pastor's of the RPCNA and also to serve young and aspiring pastors by by gleaning experience and wisdom uh, from guys who have been in the pastorate for some time. And so we want to welcome you today, who's uh, whoever's listening. I am Joe Smith, the pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Denver, Colorado. My name is Aaron Murray, pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church here in uh, central, north central Indiana, thereabouts. And we are joined by my uh, good friend, Joel Hart. Joel, how are you doing this morning, this afternoon, or this evening, whatever time you're listening to this podcast, I guess. <laughs> I, uh, I think uh, where I am, it's this afternoon. So I am doing well this afternoon and good to see both of you guys. And thanks for the invite and glad to talk to you guys this afternoon. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got a hard kidding question for you that I didn't give you ahead of time. All right. But I got to I got to set this, right. for this. OK, so Joel and I, um, we both were at second RP for a number of years. You were the associate pastor there and I was the intern. So I was interning with you and uh, James Ferris at the time. And when I left, you kind of wrote a uh, goodbye card when I went to seminary and it was a really nice card. And, you know, it made Mary tear up a little bit. But in that card, you likened our friendship to Mary and Pippin from the Lord of the Rings. Now, here's my my question that's just been burning at me ever since then. Which one of us is Mary and which one of us is Pippin? That's a great question. I Because uh, I think in that card, uh, I probably didn't make that clear. Um, I haven't thought through this question before, but off the top of my head, uh, well, Pippin's the guy that it takes, uh, it, it takes him a while uh, at least uh, in in the films, to uh, kind of figure out what's going on, and uh, maybe the pastor intern relationship would suggest that uh, uh, you you were the guy that we were working to try to figure out what was up. So at least for now, uh, I'll call you Pippin, and if you have a comeback to that, I'll, I'll probably accept it. No, but, I actually figured that. I thought you know, if any of us is going to be called fool of a tooth by Gandalf, it would be me, not you. Right. So I was fully prepared for that answer. <laughs> Yes. Well, may, maybe at Presbytery, if you uh, make a speech that I don't like, I'll just look over and say, fool of a suck, and you'll know what I mean, and everyone else will uh, uh, will roll their eyes or something. So You're very confused, yeah. Best Presbytery insult of all time. Not that we want to be uh, listing good Presbytery insults, but no, there you go. We want, we want Presbyterian uh, unity, of course. Um, yes. All right, well, thanks for clearing that up for me. I can sleep well at night now, knowing that uh, you're Mary and I'm Pippin, and 
Uh, I don't think anybody would want to hear you sing to Denethor as he munches on that overly ripe tomato anyways. Oh, dear. So, I was I'll, just I'll, I was teaching some kids on the Psalms today, and I was suggesting that I could sing something. And then I had to clarify <laughs> that, no, I really can't sing that. You know, I, I, you do not want to hear me sing. And Aaron knows this as well as almost anyone. So, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, like, like I mentioned, you uh, you were the associate pastor at uh, Second RP for a number of years. You're now currently serving um, as the sole pastor there in Columbus, Indiana. And our first real question for you is, what uh, what was that transfer like as you go from kind of an associate position now to a solo pastor position? Um, and how did you navigate making that transition? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, at one level, I, I think the calling of a pastor, wherever you are, is going to have a lot of similarities if God's called you to that. So uh, I think at Second RP, I found myself most weeks waking up, getting to work, thinking about a sermon I had to write, probably had some teaching I was doing in a Sunday school, midweek Bible study, probably had some counseling cases that I was working through and people I was trying to minister to getting ready for meetings and a committee I was chairing. And in some ways, I'm doing the same thing now. Preaching, teaching, discipling, counseling, trying to lead. So uh, I'm a big advocate. You know, associate pastors are real pastors too, that kind of thing. And I know you would, uh, both you guys would affirm that very much. So I, I think I, I've been doing this, the work of a pastor either place, and it's been the same type of ministry. I think some of the differences are well one difference is just how how decision making is experienced and processed in the church i mean aaron mm -hmm. you mentioned being an intern there at second you, you saw it second we had people there at the church daily that were working through church questions opportunities challenges you had people to bounce things off of i've got that at columbus the guys i have to bounce it off to have full-time jobs and i love them they're great they assist me. They help me. But it's a different dynamic. That team structure, you're you're working together. The solo pastor position I have in, in Columbus, decision-making is different. There's also kind of a, a buck stops here feature to being head pastor or solo pastor. Mm -hmm. It's good, It's good, but it's also challenging. I realize the hardest issues are always going to flow to me. Also, just as far as ministry is concerned, there's a, a lot greater sense now of people looking to me to put the ball into play. And I want to encourage other people to obviously have energy and creativity to, to initiate ministry. But there's a greater sense of having to be in tune to what needs to happen, what isn't happening, et cetera. So am I getting at your question? You could. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're getting at it and you, you answer it however you want to. Um, yeah. And, you know, Joe, if you have any other questions for Joel about this. Uh, feel free to chip in. I just, I would just be interested. And I think this would be one of those things. That's a service to guys uh, in seminary at this point that you've had, uh, you've been both an associate and a solo pastorate in, in very early in your career. Uh, what are some things that guys could be thinking through? Let's say a guy has a call to take an associate. Uh, let's say all things are equal. They're both great, loves the session, all of these things. Just or what are some things that a guy could be thinking through? Maybe maybe, maybe um, uh, one's own personality or giftedness could lean uh, them in one direction, but just perhaps some counsel, um, things you've thought through that, that guys could be thinking through who may 
you know, have both opportunities um, uh, in front of them? Yeah, that's a good question. I've thought about it a lot because I had I had both kind of opportunities coming out of seminary. And then when I received the call to Columbus, I had both opportunities again because of being at second with the opportunity to go somewhere else. I would um, some things to think about. One is ministry can thrive. God needs servants in the kingdom. You know, better a doorkeeper in your house. Uh, the blessing is to serve Christ in his kingdom. So definitely lay down any sense of one role is going to have more opportunities to serve Jesus than the other. Uh, maybe definitely lay down a sense of that a title is important. You know, I need a head pastor on my resume. Uh, if I were going to be, if God wanted me to be an associate pastor for 45 years and I was able to be an ambassador for Christ in that way, hallelujah. Uh, so lay down a sense, you know, the career world is going to kind of ask you to promote, get more titles, whatever. We're just ambassadors for Christ. I would think very much about both gifting and capability and desires that relate to preaching. Some associate pastorates, well, associate pastors are going to have different features tied to the preaching ministry and even different levels of buy-in from the session on where that preaching ministry fits within the role of the preacher. If you go to a place like RPTS, you are being trained in a theology and a ministry style that pivots on weekly preaching. I think you guys would agree with me having gone there. If you're going to be going to a place where either you're, you're not going to be preaching weekly or you uh, aren't sure if the elders uh, desire that or value that, you should know that. Um, I'll just say second RP valued that weekly preaching and I had it as a major part of my role. An interesting feature of being an associate pastor early in ministry is that if you're, say, preaching in the evening, you may be preaching to fewer people week after week, because most churches that have fewer come in the evening, you're probably going to be spending more time prepping sermons than a senior pastor, because you're new to this, and you're trying to figure out how to write a sermon. So don't go in an associate pastor ministry thinking, I'm sort of the, the jack of all trades in this church, or I'm going to do all these different things if you are being tasked with weekly preaching, because that's going to really consume a lot of your time. Um, so those would be some things I, I could add more. Um, I could I could add more. I think if you're going to go into a solo role, you definitely want guys around you that you can text, call, meet with, etc. I'm pa Pastoring doesn't have to be lonely, but you do have to be intentional about who am I connecting with? Because there will be days, if you're a solo pastor, even if you want to meet with everybody in the church, there will be days as a solo pastor, you're in your office from nine to five and you may not see anybody. You got to know that's there. If that's going to be really hard for you, you got to be ready to work with that. You also just need mentors, people in your life uh, that are encouraging you. So that's something I tried to build even as I went over to Columbus. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's helpful. Uh, that's that's what I was, was looking for. Dr. Whitla does have a class where, you know, he spends an hour on and he has experience uh, as well, at least being an associate and then being a senior and then having an associate with him. And I just I just remember finding that class very helpful. 
and thought, you know, in a sense, you're a, a unique guy uh, to be able to speak to that question and especially very unique in the sense that it's happened very early in your career. Um, you mentioned already that you were teaching some youth uh, earlier today. I think you said on the Psalms. Uh, that was another thing we wanted to just ask you about. Uh, could you speak to just how and why uh, Christian education is important for our youth? Um, take that where you will, maybe some some principles or some lessons uh, you've learned uh, along the way. Yeah, well, Christian education is uh, something in both places I've been that I've engaged in uh, directly. Uh, I have a heart for it, at least immediately, five kids, nine and under, and desiring to see them grow in the Lord. When I was at second, they asked me to chair spearhead work on the youth christian education program and so i put a lot of time into the mechanics of that but also trying to give the the vision or, or purpose for that i remember preaching on two sermons one on isaiah 54 all your children will be taught of the lord and great shall be the peace of your children and that emphasizes children uh, receiving and, and knowing the word of God and, and having peace with God and that relationship with God being formed and, and desiring to see that passed on to the next generation. That's in context of comments on Noah. It's kind of a, a, a Noah off the flood kind of promise. Be fruitful and multiply. See this brought to the next generation. But I, I love as well Zechariah 8, which teaches on, which has this depiction of the boys and girls of Israel playing in the streets of Jerusalem. And it's this picture for the people of God of restoring. They're, they're in the process of rebuilding what was broken in the exile. And there's this extra encouragement that you're going to see the day where the kids are running around Jerusalem and the older folks are going to be watching it and loving it. And what a beautiful picture just of what the church should be like that, that, and we're not just, I'm not just talking about kids running around the sanctuary, which mine do sometimes, but there ought to be this sense that the children are participating in the joy of redemption. And it's a sign of healthiness in a church and in the body of Christ that kids are, are part of it. And, and we don't wait for them to become adults so that they can be enjoying redemption and enjoying being part of the life of the church. We, you know, the adults are looking at the kids and saying, this is us. This is how we can celebrate what's what's taking place in the church. So, and what God's doing among us. So the, the church has always had public preaching and teaching. And of course, that's a place and way that kids get, you know, you get Christian education for the youth in a sense. The church has always also, I mean, the faithful churches have always had patterns of catechesis, uh, discipleship, training, um, more recently, you know, churches talk about Sunday school and um, different things can be done. But I think I'd want to encourage churches or at least encourage my own church that this need, it needs to be somewhere. There needs to be somewhere in the church where children are being dis discipled, encouraged, exhorted, and shown the love of Christ. So I've been in Sunday school, you know, when I was at second, I, I sort of set a goal, which I think is actually borrowed from Barry York of 
teaching all the kids in the church. And I, I didn't complete that goal, but I, I, I made it decently far. I can't remember how far I got, but trying to teach all the classes, I, I'd love to have that at Columbus too, spending time teaching all the children. I'm also, one, one thing we have at Columbus is a Christian co-op. So that's what I was teaching this morning, a Christian co-op that teaches homeschool children throughout the community. And I'm teaching a class on wisdom literature, which at least Aaron has probably heard much of that material through some preaching on Proverbs I did. But ways of bringing it into the week, uh, there's other ways it can be done. But those are just some of my thoughts. You guys can bounce off questions if you have them, but those are just just some thoughts. So so do you think it would be um, at least a noble goal for a pastor to basically, I guess I'm asking when you say that you wanted to teach all of the kids, are you meaning that you would take like a quarter of the Sunday school in the three to five year olds? And then it was yes. your goal to teach. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the goal. And okay. again, I, I can't boast of saying, well, I've done all that. So look at my example. But I, I think that as pastor, I have to communicate that particularly with our views on baptism, mm-hmm. the children are, are part of the church. Children are not just sort of, um, happenstance residents in the homes of parents who are the church, you know, and we will teach your parents and we'll hope that uh, one day that the parents tell the kids enough and the kids come to the church and then we'll welcome you in. Uh, they're part of our church and we want them to see that and know that one thing I'm really enjoying right now at Columbus, we just added children's notes to sermons sort of customized handouts for kids to fill out listening to sermons. So this is more of the public preaching. And my engagement with children in the preaching has gone up exponentially the last week. We've been doing it for, for three or four weeks now. And just seeing kids engaged with it, I make a note of what they should be listening for at the start of the sermon. And I, I love that back and forth I'm able to have with the kids after the service that mm-hmm. flows from that. So, yeah. yeah. So I, you texted me when you started doing that and <laughs> providentially you started doing it on the passage where Noah gets drunk. And I, uh, I still haven't received any of those pictures from the kids, you know? Like, Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have this scary discovery, you know, you put on, it, this is scary for maybe several texts. So if you put on the kids notes, draw a picture. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> and you maybe sometimes you need to clarify like what pictures would be really helpful mm-hmm. for this, uh, for this sermon. So, yeah, and then the next week I had the table of nations, you know, Genesis 10. But that's actually fun because you can have mm-hmm. the kids write, you know, draw pictures of a map and mm-hmm. all these nations that God intends to bring to himself, you know, at the last great day and all that. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, yeah, there there are certainly uh, harder texts in Genesis uh, <laughs> yes. for kids to have to draw. <laughs> yep. Um, but okay, so, so towards that end, so we've got the, the Christian education. You talked about how preaching, of course, is part of that. Um, but I want to focus in more specifically on kind of your view of preaching, your philosophy of preaching, what your sermon preparation looks like throughout the week, um, and how you go about accomplishing that calling that the Lord has placed on you. Sure. Um, philosophy of preaching. I don't think, and you're not asking for it, I don't think I have a custom philosophy of preaching that's specific to me I, I better not a friend of mine articulated recently something like preaching is god's heart being announced to a sinner's heart coming through the preacher's hearts and 
thought that was pretty good. Uh, um, would want to emphasize in that definition. I know this friend of mine would emphasize it. It's coming through the scriptures, right? right. So it's mm-hmm. uh, announcing the word of God to sinners. And that emphasis on heart, um, maybe it's convenient that I would emphasize heart. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, the, the emphasis on heart is in coming to a sermon text, my longing is to be mastered by it. Uh, for me to have a sense to keep the illustration going of the beating heart of the text. What makes this text so glorious? Uh, I can barely contain my sense of wonder as I preach it. So Sometimes maybe it's a sense of fear. I, I just preached on the flood, right? A sense of there's an overwhelming sense of the gravity of what's happening here. I've been talking to a few people. Maybe you guys have tried the chat GPT thing that, you know, you, you can text that and ask it for a three-point reformed sermon outline on any text. And does it give you one? And it, and it gives you one that, you know, sometimes it doesn't make sense, but it's at least trying. But what I do in the pulpit better be more than that. It better be more than a, a computer-generated type. Well, here's three things I said on the text. I, I do hope you have a nice day. You know, it, there better be a sense that the text has gripped me and that there's a pleading and an urging and a longing that it would grip the congregation through, not through my expertise, but through an encounter with the living God. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of the, I guess, the philosophy and, and it centers on a, a high view that this is actually what God's word does, right? God's word is this. It is this encounter with the living God, and, and I'm just trying to present it to people. Sermon preparation is often whatever it takes to get that written into my heart. And and often, you know, whatever resource. So I, you know, I read commentaries. And I outline texts, and I do work in the original languages. Well, one feature of solo pastoring, when you're the only person in the building, is you can do a lot more pacing, a lot more verbal processing. Mm-hmm. And and I, I did some of this at second, but my immersion, a sense of where I, I, I I'm not ashamed to say it, I, I walk around our fellowship hall in circles pondering and talking out the text to myself. I, mm-hmm. I am a processor like that. I, I definitely don't just sit at a desk and get my fountain pen out and, and write out a sermon sort of without moving. Aaron's got his fountain pen. <laughs> made. But, but I, I, I don't. And I, I, I often talk about, at least when the weather is good, I, um, I walk and pray a lot. So I'll actually spend time in local parks and just walk, pray, meditate on the text. Um, usually, you know, you framed by the text I've read and praying and searching and, um, trying to see that what is the, what is the glory that this text has that almost no other text in the Bible could preach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of my thoughts you guys can. Yeah. Well, I remember you, uh, kind of pacing the ground at second RP, uh, I'm trying to cut the grass and I'm like, oh, oh I'm yeah. messing up Joel's prayers. <laughs> oh no. Oh, yes. Yeah. Aaron out there cutting the grass and I'm I'm out there and lost in thought, but 
Well, and I, I uh, you had talked about once um, you kind of like Brian Chappell's method of problem solution uh, sermons. Is that something that you still kind of use as a rubric to help frame your outline? Yeah, I think Brian Chappell's um, fallen condition focus is is really good. Um, Brian Chappell writes on that, and I'll speak to what that is. And then there was another, I'm trying to remember the other theologian I read that sort of updated Chappell's FCF. But the, um, the fallen condition focus is that there is a crisis of human experience that the text is engaging and leading toward solution in Christ. And so my introductions to sermons engage that fallen condition focus in some way and invite the hearer to um, bring their fallen condition to the text. So often before I read the sermon text, I'm sort of orienting the, the listener to the text itself. So the, the risk maybe of a fallen condition focus is you don't want sort of anthropocentric, you know, man-centered, you know, just speak to whatever Aaron's need of the day is kind of preaching. Orient to the text, what's happening in Scripture as we come to this text in Genesis or Mark or whatever. And then after I read, the intro is going to lean in on what is wrong in the human condition, and then the world of the text and the world of my suffering are going to have a conversation, are, 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 are in dialogue in this text, leading me to Christ and leading me to, to hope and the response I'm supposed to have. Mm -hmm. So I, I structure off that. And then you know, as far as mechanics, I think I've sort of talked more philosophy, you know, mechanics of preaching. Um, I'm sort of willing to outline the sermon. I like outlines mm -hmm. and note takers like outlines. I'm willing to outline the sermon. I'm willing to structure the sermon sort of whatever way seems to lean in on solving the issue that has been presented, say, in the in orientation to the text and orientation to our fallen condition. Yeah, well, I always appreciated your outlines. And I remember you, what you would do, I don't know if you still do this, is your outline would basically be your homiletical point, which is a sentence. And then you would slowly do that. So I, I actually did that this past Lord's Day. So yeah. I uh, it was on Philippians 14 and 20. And so the, the sentence was, your partnership in each other's troubles is a pleasing aroma to God confirmed by a promise to supply your needs. It's like, I'm channeling my inner Joel heart here. This, <laughs> this right here now is my outline for my sermon. <laughs> yes. That um, uh, that leans on some of the themes that Denny Preto mm -hmm. emphasized yep. through the years of your sermon has a point, articulate it, unfold it. I think my, uh, Dr. Preto, I think would, would say maybe more, let the outline sort of sit underneath the sermon. And, and maybe I, I, uh, I'm not effective enough communicator to hold people's attention that long. I, I do like to bring the outline up to the surface a little bit and say, Hey guys, here's where I'm going. That point method of just outlining. All right. That's a four part sentence just gave you. We're in part two of that. It, it sounds like the old classic preacher three point sermon, but it's using this. There's one point we're trying, we're just building it. Um, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, you got any so, questions? Well, I was just going to say one, one last thing on that. I think a lot of people, you know, are often curious about, and it's helpful for guys to think through. And so maybe you could say what 
where you're at on this and if there's maybe been any sort of development or change, but are you like a, uh, a no notes guy, a skeleton, a detailed outline or a manuscript? What do you, what do you take into yeah. the pulpit and preach from? I, I take into the pulpit. Well, 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 let me back up. I, when I write my sermon, I sort of spew out, that sounds kind of nasty, but I, I, I pour out a manuscript that then reads onto my Microsoft Word document. So I talk it out. I, it, it's The thought comes from my head and I put onto the document. So, you know, as of Thursday afternoon, you might have a document on my computer that more or less is what I will say in the sermon. But then I spend time tweaking that. Often that document doesn't have enough illustrations and doesn't have enough leading with the congregation, inviting them to Christ. That document may be more, the initial manuscript is here's the here, here's the logical flow of the sermon. And, and then that's a, so it's a semi-manuscript over time. I'm adding an illustration here, thinking about, all right, where am I going to pause and lean in on the gospel with people, hopefully. By the Lord's Day, I have something like a half manuscript where that full manuscript has been boiled down bullet points, you could call it, maybe some key lines or sentences or phrases are going to be fully written out. Um, I think when I'm busy, sometimes there have been times recently, it's been more full, maybe than I would have expected. I might have thought over time I would go to fewer notes, but I think it's been more full. Preaching on complex passages, I often get more detailed, maybe if there's something controversial or something, I think really needs to be precise here. So, yeah, I don't have the answers on that. It, um, it's probably been said a lot of times. Some guys go into the pulpits with no notes, probably should have brought notes. Some guys go into the pulpit with a lot of notes, probably could have been fine with a few less. And you could ask my congregation which one I am, you know. Do you need more notes or fewer notes? I, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's that's good, I think. Um I think something we're finding out just already, you just being basically our fifth interview, is that um, guys change on this. Guys go back and forth on this. Sometimes, like George Gregory mentioned, that it's all just depending on the text. He may he may go with a, a bare skeleton one week and then a full manuscript the next. You know, I mean, I think it's just one of those deals. Uh, Kyle Borg pointed out that at Puritan back in the day, they would kind of tailor their preaching instruction, you know, Hey, you're a, you're probably a, a very little note guy. Hey, you should just commit to a full manuscript and not, not ever try and go away with it. And, and I think that's kind of the point that we're seeing already um, in these interviews in which I, I expect to see across, but I think that's comforting for guys to hear uh, in seminary. You're reading these things. You can get all excited about a no notes thing or all excited about a this or that. I think this is the way, this is the only way. And um it's, it's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I agree with that. I think advocates of a method can love it so much or it can be such a blessing to them that they can get close to saying, and this is the method that will change the church or this is the message that will method that will that is necessary or this is biblical preaching one on one like this is what it is to preach. And notes are a tool, right? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from the heart, I, I have labored as best I can with all the different methods. To but what what matters is the word of God coming in front of real people, and they're not even looking at your notes. So what matters is are you are you really proclaiming Jesus to them from the word of God? 
Amen, amen to that. Um, that transitioning to that, but kind of related is where these last few questions are more geared towards towards serving guys um, early on in ministry, guys aspiring, guys in seminary. Uh, you again being um, a somewhat of a unique interview, you kind of have this good balance of um, experience, giftedness, but still being relatively not too long out of seminary. Uh, what are some things that that a young man, uh, old, I guess could be any man, a uh, man <laughs> could be doing uh, now as he perhaps considers going to seminary, or let's say even also, let's say he has considered and and under his session in presbytery, he is now committed to going. What are some things a guy could be doing to prepare for seminary and and in a sense to get the most out of that, to go into it in the, in the most prepared mindset that he can. Good question. I appreciate you sort of kind of calling me young there. <laughs> I, I was uh, moving a, some, a family in our church on Saturday and someone kept talking about that. The young guys need to help move this piece of furniture. And I realized he's not talking about me. They're not, I, I am off the list. Uh -huh. I'm, not a, I'm not a young guy. They, there's somebody, the other, there's another list of people, not me as the young guys. So yeah. Uh, moving is for 20 year olds, not for 30 year olds. Right. That's that. And I was so sore the next day that I realized absolutely. I am not the young guy. Uh -huh. so, um, <laughs> I, I would say. If I was if if you come into my office and and you want to talk about pastoring, I would probably start with get get really close with Christ, which may be obvious, but actually it's not because mm -hmm. there are people that that want to talk about pastoring that don't want to talk about that as much. You, you need a deep personal relationship with Jesus for your own soul and eternity, and ministry and and effectiveness is your your life and ministry is life of walking with Christ, living in the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father, you know, very Trinitarian. Eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ who he has sent. And if that's not what drives you as a person, then you're not going to be able to go into the pastorate, even if you've read Pick Your Theologian, right? Or if you're good at evangelism, or if you're a good public communicator. So, you know, in church circles like ours, there tend to be open pulpits. Um, there tend to be opportunities. What's going to knock you down is not that issue, or um, what's more likely to knock you down is that you don't, is that your heart is not on fire for Christ, that you're not giving yourself to Christ. So I, I would say that. I would say invest, uh, get close to people and bringing people close to Christ. I think um, the guys who carried their friend on a mat to drop him in the roof through Jesus. I remember hearing a sermon on that. It's just, we all ought to kind of have that type of ministry in our life where if we've got to climb up on top of a roof to help a friend see Christ or maybe to see Christ ourselves, we're going to do that, get close to ministry. So talk to your pastor about what does that look like in my local church? Does it look like mentoring a young person? Does it look like attending this Bible study? Does it look like teaching the study? Um, hopefully by the time you're really considering it, you're already doing that. And I would, seminary students ought to have the same mentality, a drive to go minister. I, I'd want to encourage, you know, you're going to get some 
guys in our circles that by the time they ask that question, they've read Calvin's Institutes twice. Some guys, by the time they ask that question, um, are terrified of reading Calvin's Institutes, and that's holding them back. And I would tell guys, start where you are and soak yourself in good theology, in, in good doctrine, good reading. Don't be ashamed of, of where you are. I think I, I really, as I saw Aaron, you you growing at Second RP, I think you did this really well. Um, be reading a good book. Maybe be reading a couple good books. Um, you read a couple good books, you're going to find that you need to read another guy. Um, you, or you're going to suddenly be ready to engage something you didn't think you ever could do. So immerse yourself in good theology. Um, and even as you read good theology, you know, read B.B. Warfield's The Religious Life of Theological mm -hmm. Students, which talks about, you know, doing theology on your knees. Um, so those, those would be some of my thoughts uh, on that question. Um, Aaron, you, uh, you got any follow-up on that or anything before we uh, get to the theological question? All right, not a follow-up, just a confession. Um, I still haven't read all of uh, Calvin's Institutes. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm on the same page. I'm not. I have uh, maybe I should. I, I I don't know. Uh, I was thinking earlier this year I should probably I, I might go at it, but I, I've read a good chunk. But I haven't. I've not read all the institutes. So. Mm -hmm. I, I'm in the same boat. I mean, you don't at RPTS. You're not required. Well, there's there's a class on the institutes. I think you have to read it, but that's a an elective, not a yep. required class. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Now, Joe, right. I, I'm really curious because I don't know what this uh, last question is going to be. It's it's one of them I, I uh, one of them I sent you. So so Joe, pretty much um, what we our goal here is just to ask kind of a some you know a fun if you will little theological question at the end of these one that uh, doesn't necessarily uh, distinguish. <laughs> Uh, you know, reform people from reform people or anything like that, or, or one sure. that may just be fun to talk about, but there's uh, one of those less clear things in the Bible. And, and some of these too, like this one is probably something I'm just guessing uh, you don't sit around and think about much. And maybe you haven't thought about it all. Um, our first question, we asked the first round of guys, and some of these questions may get recycled because if we're going to interview every pastor, we may not be able to think through enough of these little fun, <laughs> fun nuggets. The first question we asked was, could Jesus have gotten ill? That was the question we asked uh, Kyle Borg, Barry York, Nathan Eshelman, and George Gregory. Uh, Aaron and I came down on uh, no, he couldn't have. We were 0 for 4. All four of those guys uh, disagreed with us. I've since switched my position to kind of a, a no and a yes kind of position that maybe I can talk about it at a later time but anyway so so here here's the question we're going to go with for the for the next um the next four guys at least so hebrews 1 14 says are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation so talking about angels right matthew 18 10 jesus talks about little ones and he mentions their angels Acts 12, 15, when Rhoda sees Peter and um, she goes in to say something about it and they say, it's his angel. So we're looking to settle the debate 
do individual believers have individual guardian angels? Let me let me give you some time to think about that, Joel. <laughs> you know, I feel like you stacked the deck against him with all the scripture passages. No, I'm saying those are the one. Those are the only ones I know that speak to it. it. I, I, I'm willing to talk, but go go ahead, Aaron. I, yeah. Let uh, me let me Google my answer real quick. Yeah, yeah. Ask the <laughs> chat GDP or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but, but, were you going to say something, Aaron? Or you, no, I'm just you? buying you time. You now you time. Okay. I'll just confess uh, it to I have I don't I don't know in in. On one of these passages, Matthew Poole says, no, it can't be used to defend that. On another one, he's like, we don't know. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll start with, well, it's fascinating. Apparently, I'm the first of four or five guys. So yes, I'm yes. going to be listening to like five podcasts <laughs> whenever these get out. And, and, and I was the first. And so I was the first to take a stab. And then yeah. I'll see who I am among my peers. Yeah. Uh, I, I am convinced that in our view of reality that we have underestimated the reality of the spiritual world, perhaps because of influence by modern enlightenment and perhaps because there are places the Bible doesn't speak. So when we're trying to process how the world is pieced together, uh, I I was preaching recently, I cannot remember which text it was, but angels came up briefly. Uh, and in some ways, I can't remember my exact illustration, but we're like children uh, learning about ancient Chinese politics or something when it comes to the angelic world. Like, yes, as my young kids can learn about Chinese political decisions, but but at one level, there, there's, there's things beyond them that they can't understand there, but they're clearly there. I mean, Jesus is raised up above every rule and authority and dominion. He, he's raised... His redemption is about victory in the spiritual and physical world. So there, there are things in that world that we do not comprehend. Uh, there's also a glory to that world, I would say. Uh, I would argue, I've been teaching in Job to this uh, wisdom in this wisdom literature class, like Job 38, 7. Where were you? when the sons of God shouted for joy, I'm paraphrasing, shouted for joy at the creation of the stars, basically. And I, and I would say sons of God there, I'd interpret as angels. Mm-hmm. Job is being told this, like, do you know how excited the angels were at this event? It, 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 it would blow your mind if you, if you could have seen it. And we, we, we're kind of, you know, living my daily world, and I haven't seen an angel today, so I'm not thinking about it. There seems to be more there than we think. So I think if you asked me five years ago, I would have said, no way, the guardian angel. I think if you'd asked me maybe even a year or two ago, I probably would have said, definitely not. The point of Hebrews 1 and even Matthew 18 is the glory and care of Christ. Hebrews 1, I mean, he's the, Hebrews 1 is the great passage on Christology, Matthew 18, it's in the gospel. So you don't want to distract people with, well, let's talk to your guardian angel about it kind of stuff, right? Or um, there are obviously in church history lots of kind of cheesy or simplistic ways that guardian angel language has been used. But I think God's, I, I, I think the sons of God that were shouting for joy are, are really interested in this world. And God has a purpose for them. And so I'm going to be less definitive there than I used to be and say, 
Do I have a particular guardian angel? I'm going to probably go with, I don't have good reason to believe I have one particular guardian angel. Right. You're so special. You get like 20. Well, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate it. Uh, but is the angelic world more vibrant and active than I have previously thought? I, I'm, I'm moving toward yes, it is. And, and we shouldn't be terrified of this question. Am I allowed to know the Aaron, uh, the Aaron Joe position on this, or do I have to wait for the big reveal? Uh, I mean, I can I can give mine and then I'll let Joe give his. So I probably very similar to everything that you just said. Um, so when I was four or five, I think there was this big sledding hill uh, that my parents would take me to. And so my mom tells me the story. I don't remember it. Um, but I was going down this hill and, you know, it was in the back of the church and it was a big brick building. And I just went way too fast, apparently. And right before I hit the, uh, the brick wall, um, I just stopped. You know, I didn't fly off the sled. I didn't, you know, you know, momentum didn't carry me into the wall. I just stopped. <laughs> and my mom's always told me that's it's your guardian angel kind of thing. And then, you know, I would kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, very cool. And then growing up, being getting older, um, it's like, I don't know what's wrong with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I just don't know, um, but very comfortable with saying God cares about his people. And um, he uses his angels, his messengers to care for his people. So whether, again, it's a particular guardian angel or if it's the heavenly host um, that is there to um, minister to God's people, um, I'm, that's, that's kind of where I'm landing at, which is a political way of saying I just have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I like everything you guys said. Um, I, I don't know either. If, if, if we get to heaven and find out that we did, I'll say, okay sure if not then okay uh i just I, I don't think there's enough biblical evidence those passages i mentioned they're just, like you said it's not the point of the passage it's just like a, a, a in passing uh comment you know um and so i'll be honest i i don't the the last one i had a pretty pretty staunch position on this one not so much hmm. i'll be interested to hear the discussion on the, on the yeah. Last one. yeah 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 me too. Me too. All right, well, this has been a, uh, another episode of the Blue Banter Podcast. We thank you for tuning in and uh, listening to our interview with Joel Hart, who's the pastor there in Columbus, Indiana. Um, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, including bantering back and forth about theology and ministry, do all to the glory of God. <laughs>